Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Miriam Baer, Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. We will discuss her articles, Sorting Out White Collar Crime, which was published in the Texas Law Review, and Insider Trading's Legality Problem, which was published in the Yale Law Journal Forum. So welcome to the program, Miriam. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, so it's such a pleasure to have you on. And um, I just thought I would note that I initially came across your article when I saw it mentioned in Matt Levine's Money Stuff column, which is such a cool kind of promotion for for a law review article, because I know his readership is pretty broad and and diverse. And I can see why he was interested, because um, you know, these papers are both really really fascinating and something that I hadn't thought about uh, at all before. So I was wondering if you could do that too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I was wondering if you could start by, by talking about what is the concept of sorting in criminal law, because both of your papers draw on this concept in a really interesting way. So sure. And I'll weave in sort of how I uh, came to this idea in general. Um, So before I became a law professor, uh, among other things, I was a federal prosecutor. Um, so I, I and I towards the end of my time as a prosecutor, I specialized in what we think of as the major white collar um, crimes in the federal system, like you know fraud, bribery, um, obstruction of justice, those kinds of cases. Um, and so when I became a law professor, one of the first uh, courses I taught was criminal law, right? The one L criminal law class. And what I found so striking is, you know, so when you teach the one L criminal law class, you're, you're dealing mostly in, for one thing, state statutes, but also um, because you focus so much on crimes like homicide, you have these very, very finely subdivided statutes, right? We're all sort of used to hearing that in our popular life and popular culture, right? That there's something called for example, first degree murder and second degree murder, or we've heard that there's a difference between manslaughter and murder. And we know that these degrees mean something. So just as a general rule, you know, if someone's been charged with first degree robbery, that sounds a lot worse than fourth degree robbery. Um, And all of that was striking to me because this kind of legislative sorting of dividing up crimes and offenses doesn't really happen in the same way in the federal system. So as a prosecutor or as a former prosecutor, my first thought when I started teaching over 10 years ago was, wow, you know, federal world is so much better. We don't have to do all this sorting stuff. We wait until the sentencing stage at the very end, and then we have sentencing guidelines. So it's much better that we don't have to worry about all these legislative uh, distinctions. That's what I thought originally, you know, my first thought when I was uh, becoming a professor. And then, you know, over time, as I taught, you know, criminal law, and I learned a lot more about the model penal code itself, I started to think, you know, this whole legislative sorting thing, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's better. Maybe it's better for a system to sort its offenses up front and through statutes and to do all that hard work up front than to sort of wait to the end and sort people, because that's really what you're doing under the federal system. You know, sorting uh, offenders is what the sentencing system is doing at the back end, right? And so really... Um, both of the two papers that we're talking about today represent my attempt to think more about, well, if you think that front-end sorting is good, what is it you need to do to, to bring that about? And one thing you need to do, as I 
point out in the insider trading piece is you need to actually write down laws, right? So the more you leave criminal law definition to, for example, judges, the less front-end sorting I think you're going to have, right? And if you're going to have these distinctions, you need a legislature who's thinking about that kind of thing. Um, and then in the big piece, the sorting out white-collar crime, I'm really trying to figure out, okay, first of all, let's really sit down and think about the distinctions between these two systems, because they can both go haywire really easily, right? You can have major problems in either system. But let's think about why it is. I wanted to sort of investigate my intuitions and see, am I really right that front-end sorting is better? And then if it is, what are some of the tools I could use to bring it about, you know, right? Because it would be nice to say, let's just rewrite the federal criminal code, but I'm pretty um, pragmatic in, in that I realize that may not actually happen. Right. Right. So why is there this such kind of profound difference in the way that state criminal statutes and the federal criminal code kind of conceptualize the nature of of crimes? I mean, why is sorting so prevalent in state criminal codes and yet almost, it seems like almost totally absent, at least in the literal sense, from federal criminal law? Right. And I should say, you know, you don't, it's not um, even in federal criminal law, you will find subdivisions. For example, you could say, well, the narcotics laws do divide up, right, um, crimes in the sense that by drug weight, right, they're, they're basically setting their various mandatory minimums. And so in that sense, there is some sorting, but it's not this kind of overt sorting by degree, right? We don't see that first degree, second degree, third degree, and we certainly don't see that in the white collar statutes. Um, so that was one of my questions too, is, hey, what, what's to account for this distinction? And I have sort of an early section um, at the beginning of the Texas piece in which I say, look, it looks kind of like a historical accident, right? And, and part of that has to do with how the state um, murder laws, frankly, evolved. And some of that had to do with it was actually prosecutors in the states who actually wanted to have this kind of subdivision, who initially were pushing for subdivision, because what was happening was with sort of a broad um, all-purpose murder law, uh, they ran the risk that juries would say, "Wow, this you know accidental killing. We know that this defendant is going to receive the death penalty for this." we're not going to convict. So it was actually prosecutors who were subdividing to make their lives easier. Um, at least that's uh, what it appeared to be. And then on the federal side, it was totally different. Federal criminal law has always been this idea that we don't borrow, even though we kind of do, but we say at least, oh, federal criminal law is not about the common law. It's a, about statutes. And actually, initially, you had these sort of statutes where Congress would sort of just throw out these numbers like, uh, you know, uh, the the potential sentence for mail fraud will be, and then it might be zero to 10 years. And then at some point there would be some scandal and then Congress would up the ante and say, oh, it's zero to 20 years, right? And that's sort of how these statutes were born in the federal system. So it really was just simply um, kind of a, two different systems um, that kind of are running on these different tracks and are evolving in their own different way for different reasons. Now, there are moments when there seem to be an effort to make the federal criminal law look more like state criminal law. And that was right after the model penal code. And there's some really nice 
there's some great papers on this one by, I think it's Ronald Gaynor who, and I cite him in my paper where they, you know, it's like for 10 years, there's this effort to change the federal criminal code. And instead what happens is eventually in the 1980s, what you have is Congress says, Oh, we got it. We'll, we'll, we'll change sentencing. And that's Mm. where you have this idea of we'll have a federal sentencing commission and we'll sort of delegate all this stuff out to the sentencing commission because, you know, those guys will be smart enough to figure it all out. And this way we'll have truth in sentencing and um, we'll have more uniform sentences. We'll sort of scientize sentencing and that will kind of take care of our sorting problem. Um, And it's not to say, you know, states also, interestingly enough, even though they had legislative sorting, they too were moving towards sentencing guideline regimes. And so that's why you can be sentenced in the state for various crimes where you might still at the beginning, at the charging stage, a prosecutor would decide, you know, what crime you committed to charge you with. That might be something in the whatever degree that is. But then when it came for sentencing, you'd still have sentencing guidelines that would further refine and maybe guide the judge to decide and they'd be advisory, but they would still tell the judge, here's an idea of, you know, where this person should fall within our guidelines. Mm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about why sorting matters in terms of the way that we conceptualize criminal law. In other words, how does it affect the way we think about the consequences and justification of of criminal punishment? Sure. And so it might be easier to just let's take a an example, right? So, mm. uh, you know, let's say I commit mail fraud. Right, I somehow defraud you of fifty thousand dollars for some sort of scheme. I've promised you some sort of payoff, right? Um, And I'm telling you that I'm going to be investing your money in some fabulous real estate venture. I gave you brochures, and somehow we use the mails or the interstate wires. And lo and behold, I just took that money and decided to go bet on horses, right? And you know, um, that's a pretty much we might call that a garden variety con scheme, right? And and the interesting thing would be that would be charged the way we would charge it in the federal system. We either would say, well, were mails used? Fine, it's mail fraud. And were wire interstate wires used as part of the scheme? Well, maybe it's wire fraud. In fact, maybe it's both. Um, did it involve some sort of securities? Right? If it involved the securities, we might have securities fraud. Uh, If it involved credit cards, well, then we could have credit card fraud. In other words, everything is about the medium, right? Or sometimes it's about the victim. If it's a bank, then it could be bank fraud. If it's healthcare company, I'm defrauding a healthcare company, then it's healthcare fraud. But if you notice, you could have been defrauded of $50,000 or $500,000 or $5 million, and you would still, I would still be charged under the same statute. Right. And Mm. the one thing that does make this different is that the fact that someone's been charged under a statute, we lose information. Right. We as a society don't really know um, if you are the most possible serious offender under the most serious offender under that, you know, that we could dream up under that statute or just a, you know, mildly bad person. Um, So that's one thing on a retail level. We don't learn as much about the offender. Um, Also, at an aggregate level. If the federal government announces we brought 5,000 fraud cases last year, we don't really don't know much, right? We don't know. That's very different from saying if you're um, a state and you say, well, we charged 5,000 or no, I'll make it. Well, we charged 500 homicide cases, um, 90% of which were in the lower degrees, 
right? In other words, were, for example, negligent homicide made up 40% of our homicide cases. Notice that gives you information, right? Now, it's not that you can't pick up some of this information from sentencing. You can, but it's not as salient, right? And you have to go digging for it, and it's harder to find. And so that's the interesting thing to me. I don't think, to be honest with you, there's, you know, if you if we think about some of the major issues we care about in criminal law, I'm not going to sit there and tell you one system deters reliably more than another. I give mm. some reasons why you might imagine one has a slight edge over the other, but I'm not going to sit there and tell you that because, frankly, deterrence tends to be much more about the policing end and the probability mm-hmm. of detection. So I'm not going to try to tell you that, nor am I going to try to tell you, oh, you know, mass incarceration is attributable to one system or the other. I think you can have all of the horrors that you imagine and attribute to the criminal justice system if you believe the criminal justice system is in need of reform. You can attribute it either to a system that has front-end sorting or back-end sorting. That's probably not going to be a big difference. But I do think the big difference is in what we learn and what we feel about our systems. In other words, in things like the expressive value and the sort of sense of legitimacy, that is important. And I think front-end sorting, there's some value there. We learn more about what the government is doing. We understand more what the government is doing. As a result, we are either able to act in the way we want to act to make our government officials more accountable, or we're less angry at them. And so just to, I, I explain this in the paper, you know, one of the weird things you'll see on TV, or I say it's weird, something that always uh, gets me excited uh, when I watch TV is when someone has been indicted, it is not uncommon to hear, you know, folks on television will say, I'm talking about the federal case. Uh, where someone's been indicted for some sort of securities fraud case, right? So-and-so faces 75 years in prison if convicted. And that's not really technically true. Mm. What that's representing is that so-and-so has really been, so some defendant has been charged in, say, a 15-count indictment. And yes, if you were to look at every single one of those counts and look at their maximum amount of time allowed under the statute in prison, and you were done just to add each one of them up, yes, you'd get to 75 or 120 or whatever. But I actually think it's wrong to say, you know, at least in most of these instances, you know, so-and-so defendant faces 75 years in prison if convicted. That's not true. And that comes about in part because the most salient sorting mechanisms, i.e. the sentencing guidelines, are, are they're not even salient. The most uh, important uh, sorting mechanisms are occurring at the end when there's less attention, when people are less understanding of what's going on. So notice also what happens. You have someone announcing at the beginning of a case, so-and-so faces, you know, 100 years in jail. And now maybe two months, three months, five months later, the defendant pleads guilty. And now you hear he's sentenced to only three years in jail. Well, notice what you're then going to wonder right? You're going to wonder what happened there. Did the mm. government fall on its face? Did it, had it overcharged in the first instance? Did it give a special deal? This is particularly problematic in white collar cases, right? Because we're already one wondering and worrying, oh, hey, are these federal offenders getting a special deal because they're wealthier and they have greater access um, either uh, to political levers, economic levers that the rest of us don't have? And so that's, again, it's the conf- potential for confusion and the potential for obfuscation 
that bother me the most. Although there are other things and I talk about them in the paper. I mean, I do think mm. there's a problem and I, you know, I, it gets kind of wonky, but I talk about um, this idea of um, proof rights and ceiling rights, but it goes something mm. like this. Like, you know, if you want to punish me um, for, for example, negligent homicide, you know, chances are the cap, the statutory cap in some state, um, jurisdiction is pretty, uh, you know, is relatively low, right? Like maybe if you, you, you get me for negligent homicide, you're not going to be able to put me away for 25 years. Right. Um, but your proof that you have to, the thing you have to prove is that I was negligent. And we often think of that as an easier, uh, proof than proving that I intentionally killed someone. Right. And so the, there's a sort of inverse correlation there, right? The ceiling um, restrains the prosecutor. She's just not going to be able to get that high a sentence, right? On the other hand, she doesn't have to prove as much. If she wants a higher sentence, if she wants to kick me into a higher ceiling category, if you will, um, well, then she's going to have to prove more. That's at least how you think of it, how we, at least the, the ideal. Now, I, I know that right now what I just described is an ideal that doesn't always work out, but that kind of disappears in the federal system. Instead, in the federal system, someone at the moment they're arrested, their defense attorney is going to have to at least legally say to them, well, look, under the sentencing guidelines, which aren't mandatory and advisory, you probably won't end up with anything worse than X. But just so you know, the maximum sentence you are facing under the worst case scenario, and don't worry, we would appeal that, is Y. Notice that's a very different kind of conversation, and it's a very different kind of system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how do you think that difference affects the sort of decision whether or not to plead and the sort of incentives for the prosecutors under the circumstances? So, um, in terms of incentives for prosecutors, it's almost, you know, they have all the incentives in the world uh, to, frankly, uh, to extent, especially these various fraud statutes overlap. Um, and also because of what the way we define a unit of offense. So in other words, each mailing is its own crime in a mail fraud. They have plenty of incentive to overcharge. And when we say overcharge, to just charge as many um, statutes as they charge as many fraud crimes as they can. Um, and even though a good defense attorney is going to tell his client now, look, you're not looking at nearly as bad, right, uh, an outcome as they're saying on TV. Um, we don't know how that affects the defendant. So that's sort of an interesting question that might mean you might expect that defendants um, would therefore um, plead guilty out of fear. On the other hand, to be quite frank, um, defendants plead guilty anyway at a very, very high rate within the federal system, right? So I'm not sure that's making the difference. I think it makes a difference. Now, what's interesting also is in terms of incentives, it is interesting that the government does from time to time, you'll see in the press releases, like to point out so-and-so faces under the following, um, you know, case, uh, if in, you know, under the following indictment based on the number of counts, if all of the, if convicted of all these counts, so-and-so faces, and then it's some huge number. I mean, obviously the Department of Justice wouldn't mention it, um, were it not for the fact that it has some value. So I think that is a concern that, you know, there are a few really um, 
tragic cases, um, one of which I, I mentioned, and people who are familiar um, with the Boston case of, you know, Aaron Swartz, the um, uh, computer case, that was an example where the prosecutors, this is someone who um, was allegedly broke into JSTOR um, and uh, to post uh, their content, at least. And, you know, what was interesting about that case was it was very sad. The defendant um, committed suicide while his case was pending, and that received a lot of criticism. Uh, I mean, the prosecutors received criticism. And what was interesting about the case was, you know, the criticism focused on the fact that, oh, my God, you had charged him in these various counts, and he was reportedly facing, you know, decades in prison. And the prosecutors responded, oh, but that's not what we offered his defense attorney. He wasn't facing anything like that. Um, and, but that, again, goes to this confusion, right? How much time are you really facing? And without this sorting in place, this legislative sorting, that leads to these kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. So your your paper, well, really both the papers, but the Texas one in particular focuses on white collar crime. Why is the lack of sorting in the federal criminal system especially salient or relevant to white collar crime? So maybe, or maybe I should say, you know, why do I care so much about the federal system? And I guess the idea is white collar crime, we've always thought of as um, sort of the, that the federal government is particularly well poised to prosecute white collar crime, right? And in fact, we often think of the, if there's something that ought to, where federal jurisdiction ought to lie, it's white collar crime. Why? Because white collar crimes like securities fraud and often mail frauds really do um, span multiple states. Right. They really are complex. They really do get routed through all sorts of banks and interstate commerce and international commerce. And so there's a real need um, for the federal government to focus on white collar crime like fraud. And I would also include in that local corruption, bribery and stuff like that. And, and then that gets you to obstruction of justice insofar as people are lying to government investigators and interfering uh, with investigations. So that's number one is we really want the federal government in the white collar crime sphere. Okay. So that's number one. Then why do I care so much about sorting in this white collar crime area? Um, because I think actually it's kind of sad that we haven't thought about. And this is where I admit I run into problems when I try to present this paper. I always get the pushback, not on the diagnosis part, but on the remedy part. Um, it's kind of sad that we don't have a language because we don't legislatively sort. I would like to see us develop a language of, that helps us think about what makes a fraud worse than, you know, an average fraud. In other words, what's an average fraud? What's the worst kind of fraud we can imagine? What's a less worse fraud? We could do that with fraud. We could do that with insider trading. We could do that with other crimes. One of the interesting points about white collar crime is usually the focus, um, and I say this in a paper, but other people have said this too, the usual focus is on, hey, how do we draw the line between sort of innocent or maybe immoral but legal conduct and conduct we want to say is criminal. And what I'm trying to say is, hey, that's a great line. I'm glad you guys are focusing on that line. That's great. You know, you guys keep doing that. But me, I'm kind of interested in a different set of lines, a different line drawing exercise. I want us to draw lines once we figured out what's going to be criminal, right? I want mm. to think about what makes some crimes worse than others. Now, it's not that the sentencing guidelines haven't tried to do that, but they do it, they sort, but in this mindless way. 
they focus all of almost all of their attention or a big chunk of their attention on the loss amount. And that is not the kind of sorting I want. In other words, I don't mm. want to just mindlessly say, if $100,000, then it's fourth degree. And if it's up to $200,000, then it's third degree. I mean, that to me, I don't think is, is very meaningful. And the reason it's not meaningful is to go back to my example, like I defrauded you of $50,000. That may sound really modest, right? In some types of cases. In other types of cases, it could be, you know, if you are a particular, a particularly, let's take it, uh, you're a vulnerable elderly person. And in fact, I met you in a nursing home and I'm supposed to be your caregiver. And so I mm. took advantage of you and I was acting in a predatory way and I planned this from the get-go. My $50,000 fraud is way different than, for example, the person who's working in some company and out of some, you know, again, wrongful, but stressed out desire to maintain his or her job, cooks the books Maybe for $500,000. That's still bad. But I think many of us, if we think about our intuitions, we'd say the predator is far worse, right? And mm -hmm. So it's not, and by the way, the guidelines have some stuff on if you, you know your victim was particularly vulnerable. So I don't want to say the guidelines don't have anything. They do. But I want to see more built into the actual statutes. And I want to see us as a society grapple with these questions. Mm, mm. Well, how about that? I mean, like when it comes to, for example, the federal law of fraud, you know, if we were going to adopt some sort of front end sorting, like how would that happen? And what kinds of factors or what kinds of sorting other than the ones you've just mentioned or maybe incorporating those, do you think we ought to be thinking about in terms of kind of conceptualizing how we think about you know, different kinds of fraud and the relative culpability associated with them. So I tried my own effort, you know, so if, if for those who actually pull the paper on page 270 of the Texas piece, I've got these two charts, right, where I try to actually say, okay, what if we were to imagine what these degrees might look like? And where I was trying to go was I said, well, you could imagine something like first degree fraud would be kind of the purposeful premeditated scheme. The person who set out from the get-go, right, um, to draw money out from someone. You could imagine, and this is where I get a lot of pushback, a second degree fraud, maybe an impulsive scheme. And people say, what's that? There's no such thing as impulsive fraud. And then the funny thing is, though, I always respond to those folks, really go look at the federal sentencing cases and look up, you know, fraud and impulse. And you actually do find cases where what you will find is someone on an impulse joins in someone else's fraud or mm. someone on an impulse who's working somewhere cooks the books. They don't really come into the situation wanting to do that. I'm not saying they aren't doing something wrong. They are. But I think most of us intuitively feel differently about that person than we do about Bernie Madoff. And that to me might be a place to look. Um, you might look at someone's, you know, and then I was sort of looking also, uh, do you want to think about the difference between, so fraud, the way it's written pretty much covers everything from the completed scheme to the inchoate scheme. I mean, fraud by, by definition, if you look at the federal statutes, it's always, you know, a scheme to defraud. So it's by nature inchoate. And yet there are cases that talk about implausible frauds and make a big point of saying, if it's super implausible, at least in sentencing, shouldn't we be taking that into account? Now, the sentencing guidelines, 
they have something, but not enough. And and there's mm. some nice cases on that where you know, you can see defendants can get caught up in things. Um, and, and again, that gets into this question of should we be legislatively sorting the implausible frauds? Maybe not. Yeah. But that's yeah. yeah. And by the way, I'm more than happy to have to see that fight play out. I actually, that's what I want to see happen is I want to see folks actually consider, well, what would be the levers? You know, and mm-hmm. the levers, by the way, the other reason you might uh, want to do some legislative sorting goes to state of mind. And this is sort of interesting. On one hand, we say fraud is a specific intent offense, and it's supposed to be purposeful. And yet you start to see cases that say, well, you know, someone who makes a recklessly, uh, makes a statement with um, reckless indifference to the truth, we could infer that they wanted to fraud someone. And then sometimes you even find cases that, including criminal cases, that seem to be going all the way to just saying, you were reckless, that's fraud. Right. And then that's mm. really causing people to say, really? Um, mm-hmm. And there you could imagine, well, okay, what if we had some sort of, um, you know, fraud, but then we created some sort of third, we could still call it fraud. We might say third degree fraud, right. And call that the knowing facilitation of another scheme or being a reckless indifference to the truth type cases. Mm-hmm. We might put those in there. That might be a way to still capture behavior we might still feel as wrongful, but that doesn't quite fit the paradigm of the intentional, purposeful, you know, premeditated scheme. And see, that's my point right. is to pull away these paradigms, separate them out. And the thing about tease out what makes these things different. And then, you know, I was trying to do some of the same ideas with insider trading of, hey, you know, it seems to me there might be a difference. And again, with insider trading, I was really just throwing out ideas. It seems to me there might be a real difference between, you know, the insider who trades on um, non-public material information and this remote tippee who kind of knows where the information came and kind of knows there's a breach. We might feel that there's a difference there. We might still want mm-hmm. to see some sort of criminal liability for the remote tippy, but gosh, maybe we would improve the content overall of all of these statutes if we sat down and remote and we frankly wrote more than one. And I mean, there's an additional kind of question here. The other kind of pushback I often get from this kind of argument of, hey, you know, we ought to have legislative sorting is, well, not in our world, right? We we can barely write any statute, right? We, we're not going to get a bipartisan group together in Congress to actually write a statute. And the interesting thing I guess I'm saying is, well, I actually don't want you to write one statute. I'm suggesting you write 10. And there's <laughs> sort of an interesting question is, would Congress have an easier time? In other words, would that somehow um, reduce the stakes? Would it be easier to get Congress to write 10 statutes than to write, you know, 10 related statutes that are subdivided than to write one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in, in the context of like intentional fraud, I was really taken with, with your example of like the fraud so implausible that only a undercover investigator would give you the money, you know? <laughs> and, and it strikes me from what you were just saying that in a way it's kind of analogous to thinking about something like criminally negligent homicide in the sense that, you know, there might be reckless behavior that somebody should have known better than to engage in, but that wasn't actually done with the intent of like directly defrauding anyone in, in the first place. And, and with respect to the 
to, you know, kind of the concept of, uh, or the potential for legislating around this issue. I mean, it does seem like, you know, these kinds of lower burden of proof and lower potential punishment charges might facilitate federal prosecutors pursuing people uh, for actions that under the current regime, they're concerned they won't potentially be able to get a conviction or something. I mean, is, am, am I, yeah, I mean, am I in the ballpark there? So it's sort of interesting, right? Uh, sometimes people ask me, is your proposal likely to, you know, will we be able to get more bad guys? Right. And, and the answer is, I don't know. Right. And then other people ask, will more bad guys actually take the effort to go to trial? Cause that'd be good. Right. And the answer is, I don't know. I, I almost see it as potentially punishment neutral um, it may be we end up with the exact same situation that we have now, but we have a better idea of what's going on. And that's actually okay for me. I actually think it's better that we know what, to, in other words, if, if the outcome is greater transparency, which then leads to greater legitimacy and accountability, I'm actually cool with that. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, uh, folks who, for whatever reason, we don't pursue uh, because of a lack of a quote unquote lesser statute, that might be right that there could be some value in creating that lesser statute if it truly does define wrongful conduct. What you don't want to see happen um, is someone creating a lesser statute really to go after more serious behavior and you're sort of watering down what it is that that more serious behavior is is somehow mm. that's not good. The other thing, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing you did say about the implausible fraud, you know, so the case I assigned my students is this Second Circuit case called Corsi, um, C-O-R-S-E-Y. And so these guys are in a conspiracy, they're charging a conspiracy uh, to sell shares in like the Siberian pipeline. And and it's really lame and and, like, it's really, really dumb scheme. And of course, the the guy, the first guy they try to sell, you know, an interest is himself a snitch to the FBI. So he's like, nobody is ever at risk of paying any money to these guys. And yet, because it's like a, you know, X billion dollar scheme, right? That's how it's charged. It's like under the guidelines, it's a billion dollar scheme. These guys are all looking at something like 20 years at least in prison, right? And so, um, that's a problem. You could say, oh, well, that's just a sentencing problem and the judge will take care of it. Um, but that's not necessarily true. And it would be, I think, valuable to come up with a way of recognizing legislatively the difference in harm, right? What you're really talking about is that there are different harms involved. Now, you know, with the homicide example, there's still harm. There's horrible harm. Someone's died. Um, there, it's about, we think mental states matter, right? We think there is a difference between, you know, if I'm talking on the phone and God forbid uh, I kill someone, most of us see that as very different than if I take my car and I intentionally aim it at you and I try to kill you and I kill you, right? Um, and that's why we have these different degrees in homicide. So those are different concepts because one is about risk of harm and the other one's about mental state, but they both are reflecting these intuitions we have. And, and I guess that's what I'm saying is I think we do have these intuitions in the fraud context. I see them when I read these sentencing cases where judges are struggling. Um, and I kind of find, I, I kind of want to believe that if we sat down and we talked about it enough, we could find these legislative distinctions. 
Um, and I should say, by the way, states do have some legislative distinctions. It's not that states don't have their own fraud offenses. They do. And in fact, I did find some degrees. Some of them were just boring sort of things like, you know, amount of money, which I don't find all that helpful. But some did talk about things like employees and employers, and, and there were some defenses built in there. So I think that's it would be valuable to study state um, statutes for the federal government, you know, it, it would be valuable for Congress to undertake undertake a real study of this and see if we can mm. carve out um, some distinctions. Now, and the place I go in my piece towards the end is, well, hey, what if we created sort of a fraud misdemeanor statute? I mean, I know we have lots of misdemeanor statutes. What if we had a fraud misdemeanor statute? And by the way, that's controversial because a lot of people hate the Fed, you know, understandably are concerned about misdemeanors in state systems, but this is a different, it's a different group of folks. These are folks who have presumably the resources to protect themselves. And so this could be actually, if misdemeanors are going to work anywhere, you might think this is where it should work. Um, mm. And so that was, I was saying, can we carve out some crimes that could go into a misdemeanor statute? You could say the same thing. Maybe we should carve out some crimes that ought to go into an, if you will, an aggravator statute. I actually am not pushing one way or another, even though I, the paper sort of sets you up with a whole discussion of misdemeanors at the end. I'm trying to say there are tools and I know the tools exist. I want us to think about them and I want to sort of propel mm. us in that direction of thinking about them. I don't mean to say for sure that I know that there are perfect tools and here's a, here are the tools and we can just write this statute. It will all be okay. I, I don't expect that at all, but I do think we ought to be mm. having this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in passing, um, uh, obstruction of justice as well. I wonder if you've thought about whether sorting might be useful in the context of obstruction of justice charges, because it, it seems to me as like a non-criminal person that there's just anecdotally a real wide range of sort of culpability or severity of the kinds of conduct that gets charged in that context. Yeah, and in fact, there are multiple obstruction statutes, and they overlap each other, and so they create all these kinds of confusion. So it's like, were you obstructing the investigation? Were you obstruct? Was there a nexus to the investigation? Was there a nexus to this particular proceeding? So you could imagine, um, instead of having you know seven or eight different statutes, first of all, you could start thinking about what is obstructive conduct and what is the worst kind of obstructive conduct, right? And then you might think, is there a kind of obstructive conduct that we think is some, for some reason, though bad, and we want to make sure it's criminal, we don't think it's quite as bad, right? Um, and you could imagine, right, a, a real debate over that. Um, and one of the things it might do is it might allow a prosecutor then to think about in a conceptual way, instead of saying, which uh, statute does this plug into for relatively, frankly, arbitrary reasons? Oh, was it this investigation or this proceeding, which really means there was a grand jury subpoena or something? Maybe instead you're thinking about what was the effect on the government, uh, on, the, on basically on um, the government's processes, right? And maybe you would have the worst kind might be um, you know, things like destruction of evidence, right? Something like that, mm. but maybe, or, or paying off witnesses or whatever. But then maybe in the middle are things, um, like efforts to do that. Maybe that's where you put your endeavor language. Maybe by time, by separating those out, um, you, uh, reduce, 
uh, some of the unwillingness of certain folks to say, yeah, no, this is really obstruction. So it might be, that might be valuable, right? It might also uh, make it easier uh, when someone doesn't quite look like the paradigm for you to say, well, they don't look like the paradigm under this high statute, but gee, under this statute over here, second degree, sure, wow, that really means something. Maybe it doesn't, um, but I think that would be valuable. I also think it would be valuable, by the way. You know, I would want to know if there's a thing called first degree obstruction, and it does more harm, and we think it does more harm to our to our processes. And there's a thing called second degree obstruction and a thing called third degree obstruction. What's interesting about that when you use that language is that gives you easy, salient data, because then you can look every year and see, well, how much first degree obstruction did the government charge in the last two years? Oh, wow. Mm. First degree obstruction really skyrocketed. What does that tell us about our processes? What does that tell us about the charging decisions? Right. See, that Mm. gives you information in a way that I don't think it's helpful when I say, well, we charged 1503, 18 USC, 1503, 10 times and 18 USC, 1510, four times. You see what I mean? That doesn't give you the same salient information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so Miriam, in closing, I wonder if you could just reflect on whether you see a path to the introduction of some degree of sorting in federal law? I mean, are there institutional players like legislators or prosecutors who might be likely to resist it? And if so, do you think they're wrong to do so? And are there reasons why they why they shouldn't resist it? So there could be, you can imagine several pathways. One pathway would be um, if the Supreme Court in a certain area of law were to say, um, I don't know, this is this uh, violates somehow the legality principle or this is unconstitutionally vague or there's some sort of problem here, Congress needs to legislate. You could imagine in that situation um, some group taking advantage of the fact. In other words, if Congress already has to legislate in a certain area, that might be the moment to take advantage and say, look, if you're going to legislate on this, don't write just one law, write three. So that might be one place. Um, you could also imagine it, you know, be interesting to see whether it could be under, you know, you could fit this under um, the overall, you know, criminal justice reform efforts, right? There's been a real effort to reform the criminal justice system. Maybe there's a way to sell this as part of that. Um, effort. Although I will admit, because I'm sort of, I don't really want to say, oh, this will reduce punishment because I can't say it will. Mm. Um, You could imagine it going in that direction. Um, And you could also imagine prosecutors themselves, in some instances, might actually want this. And and that might be a surprising thing to say. Um, But it might be valuable to them um, because it does allow them to say, hey, sorry. In other words, allows them to put some of the pressure back on the legislature. Right. And I, and I do mm. see this as part of a broader view, which is we can't just ask, um, you know, prosecutors offices to change what they're doing. Like if we want to see real change and we want lasting change, um, you know, we should be involving our federal criminal legislature. And we've done that on sentencing issues. Right. That we've actually seen has actually worked. So I don't see why we can't um, push Congress in this direction as well. And I think um, this may be also a kind of reform that could attract 
the support maybe on both sides for the very reason that I can't tell you for sure what the effect on punishment is, but I do think it tells us more information. And I would think that pro-transparency is a good thing. Cool. Well, Miriam, thanks so much. It's been a really a pleasure talking to you about this, well, these two fascinating papers. And I, yeah. Thank yeah, you for and, and talk I, about it. <laughs> well, I really, I encourage listeners to check both of them out because there's a lot more in both papers that we weren't able to get to in this conversation. Great. Well, thank you so much for your questions. with a fan or air conditioner from Crazy Eddie. Get the guaranteed lowest sale prices anywhere on electric fans and air conditioners. It's going to be a long, hot summer, and the prices of electric fans and air conditioners are going to go up, up, up with the temperature. So get an electric fan or air conditioner on sale from Crazy Eddie now. Shop around. Get the lowest sale prices you can find. Then go to Crazy Eddie and he'll beat them. So be cool and beat the heat. See Crazy Eddie now. His prices are insane.